0: How did International Justice Mission begin?
1: Um, So iGEM began, um, I guess, through a couple of different ways. So iGEM's founder is a chap called Gary Haugen, and he was working at quite a senior level with the Department of Justice and was seconded to Rwanda following the genocide in 1994. Uh, He headed up the United Nations investigative delegation that really had the job of documenting what had happened. So he was literally wading through bodies at massacre sites. Um, And one of the many things uh, that struck him during that time was the question of where was the church in responding to this issue. Um, Another thing that struck him as well is that if there was a justice system uh, in Rwanda that was functioning in a way that seeks to protect the poor from violence, and seeks to call violent acts to account uh, at an early stage, um, you know, this uh, could have been avoided. Um, So this wasn't in place. So Gary came back from this experience and uh, essentially carried out an audit uh, of organizations, Christian organizations that were responding to the call to seek justice and whether any organizations were working very closely with justice systems to try and bring about change. And uh, in 1997, there wasn't. So uh, Gary set up IGM, uh, just one person, and it's now a global organization of over 600 staff.
0: And what does it do? Yeah. <laughs> How does it work? How does it change a legal system? How does it protect somebody who is in poverty in the two thirds world? How does it change the way in which they live?
1: Yeah. Um, So it comes alongside a number of different types of uh, violence that particularly those that live in poverty are vulnerable to. So that might be uh, modern-day slavery, it might be human trafficking, it might be sexual violence, police abuse of power, any number of uh, things. Um, And as an organisation, we uh, have field offices. We have 18 field offices throughout the developing world. And in those locations, through our investigators, we gather evidence of individual cases of violent oppression. Um, those, uh, that evidence is then gathered and taken to the police, and in partnership and collaboration, which can be hard sometimes, with the police, an operation is carried out to rescue uh, those individuals from that different, uh, those different forms of uh, oppression that they're facing. Um, uh, The individuals are then uh, put into IJM's aftercare program, which uh, is a two-year program that seeks to meet uh, immediate needs of trauma therapy and counselling, but also longer-term needs of providing vocational training to allow people to enter back into society. So that's usually for about two years, but depending on the scale of the trauma, it might be longer. As part of this process, we take cases through the court system Um, and this is an interesting process in a broken justice system because it can be extremely tedious uh, to make any progress. So as we channel a lot of efforts towards taking cases through the justice system, we hopefully will secure justice for that individual, but in doing that we will recognise Um, where the gaps in the system are, where the blockages in the pipeline are. And then really from that basis, we seek to meet those needs. So it might be um, providing training uh, of prosecutors who have absolutely no uh, formal training of how to prosecute a criminal case. And we actually have two um, Scottish advocates from the Faculty of Advocates that are currently in Kenya uh, training Um, We've been invited to train over 500 prosecutors in Kenya, uh, and they're training a group of 50 uh, over the coming week. Um, So we do that, and this is the hope that not only justice will come for the individual, but we'll then be able to address some of the wider systemic issues within the justice system itself.
0: Now, all that sounds fine, but it sounds quite dangerous work if you're taking people out of, if you're taking women out of brothels, if you are people who are trapped in child labor, yeah. if you're removing them, then obviously the people who are controlling them, um, they're not going to appreciate that. So it's it is quite dangerous work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an extremely uh, dangerous work, particularly for our um, staff in our field offices. Even me here in Edinburgh, I need to be quite careful uh, about certain things and reputational risk and attacks to IJM. So it's dangerous here, but uh, in, the, in our field offices, it's another scale. Um, a couple of examples. In India, it's commonplace. Um, let's, let's say uh, a slave owner owns a brick factory. Uh, and he has heard that there's gonna be an operation, even if the police are part of this operation, it would be quite common for him to basically call his friends. Uh, And we've had uh, mobs of 50 to 100 people descend on a brick kiln when our staff are there, when the police are there. Um, So it's extremely dangerous. Um, Another example, in our uh, office in Uganda, Um, It's one of our most dangerous offices in Gulu in Uganda in the north. Um, You might have heard of Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army Child Soldiers. A lot of that the recruitment for that took place in the north of Uganda in Gulu. Um, We do work with clients that have had their land taken off them in in Gulu. And one particular staff member in the Uganda office, one of our investigators, uh, him and his family got cursed uh, by a witch doctor and were threatened uh, with their lives. Um, But thankfully they were safe and uh, that witch doctor is actually now in prison. Um, So it's very, very dangerous. um, But IJM is extremely uh, professional in how they do their work. They are extremely rigorous in safety policies and such like and Sean who spoke this morning gave a really good analogy that I've never used so I'm gonna steal it in all my presentations now and it's like the fire brigade here in um in Scotland you know they are going into dangerous situations they're going into a building that is on fire that could collapse on them Uh, but yet they are trained to a very high level Um, they are trained to weigh up risks um, and they are willing uh, to put their lives uh, on the line for the sake of others. So that's really uh, what IGM are doing.
0: When I, mean, I heard um, saying this morning, I heard of a woman called Pranitha Timothy, who is an IGM worker in India. She's probably about 34, 35, and she was speaking at a conference I was at, where she said simply that whenever she goes out on one of these raids, she says to her young children, um, "Well, mummy might not come back." Mummy might die. And she says goodbye to her children, says goodbye to her husband, and then goes out on the raid. And even worse, at the conference, they then got her husband and children and parents up on the stage, mm-hmm. and we prayed for her. And you suddenly saw the fragility and the reality of what it was to do, to do this work. Now, I mean, we hear stories about India or Myanmar.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What about Scotland? What's going on in Scotland?
1: Yeah, um, so, so I should have maybe said this at the start, I work for IGEM here in Scotland. Um, so part of my job, as well as coming alongside churches in Scotland and legal professionals, uh, part of my job is coming alongside politicians and the Scottish Government. Um, so part of my advocacy and my efforts in that area has focused on the issue of human trafficking in Scotland. Um, And thankfully, over the last few years, there's been a lot of talk uh, at a legislative level, at a political level in Westminster, and in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, and in Wales as well. Um, Something that I'm uh, currently kind of working uh, with some politicians on and the government on is the Human Trafficking uh, and Exploitation Scotland Bill. Um, This is a bill that was originally introduced to the Scottish Parliament as a private member's bill in 2013. uh, And then, due to widespread support from politicians, from society, it was taken on as a Scottish Government bill. Uh, So it's likely to become uh, legislation in June or July of this year, which will uh, make Scotland a hostile place for traffickers and a lot safer for vulnerable people and for victims. Um, As part of this process in putting together this bill, there was an uh, an estimate that uh, one person is trafficked into Scotland every four days. Um, And this is thought to be the very tip of the iceberg. This is of people that are recognised as having been trafficked into um, Scotland. Uh, At a UK-wide level, uh, the Home Office published a report just at the end of last year. Some of you might have seen it. Uh, saying that an estimated 10,000 to 12,000 people currently live in slavery throughout the UK. Um, So it is a very, very real issue here. Um, IGM's work uh, focuses on issues in the developing world. In India, for example, there are an estimated 15 million people held in slavery. And despite it being against the law for the past 40 years, a slave owner is more is statistically more likely to be struck by lightning and killed than he or she is to be held to account for that crime. Um, that equation is changing, which is great. Um, so we focus on international work, but then through our government advocacy, we focus, focus on local issues as well. And how, how did you get to be involved in IGM? Yeah. Um, So, a a simple answer to that, I think, is that I encountered God in a slightly different way. Um, I was brought up in a very evangelical, conservative evangelical church where justice was a bit of a bad word to say, it was a bit heretical in some people's eyes. And I studied law uh, in Dundee um, and then got to the the end of my law degree and was a little bit disillusioned by law. I didn't want to practice, so I went to Bible college for two years. And It was in that um, process of taking two years to study study God's Word, I realized that the theme of justice is not a bad word in the Christian life and it should be something that is very much rooted in all that we do and how we um, relate to God and how we relate to, to one another. Um, so that was a massive catalyst for me in my uh, movement towards IGM. Um, I applied for an internship and was accepted to do an internship in Washington, D.C. at our headquarters back in 2012, um, which was probably coupled with getting married. It is probably the best thing I've ever done uh, in, in my life. Um, is, Ch- is Charlie here tonight? She's not, she's slacking off. She's, she's slacking <laughs> off. She's, she's probably. Be, we'll tell her that you
0: said it was on a par with getting married. That's
1: right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that was a bit controversial. <laughs> oh, well, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on, on the point of internships, I know that there are a number of students and young professionals in. Uh, in the room in the building today and I would thoroughly recommend uh, iGEM's internships they're focused on developing you professionally personally and spiritually and there are options for internships here in Scotland the UK our field offices or in uh, in Washington DC and I'd be happy uh, myself and Steph would be happy to speak to you at the back about that.
0: So if if we're not a student and can't do an internship when we graduate yeah if we're a lawyer, if we're a police officer, if we're a social worker um, or not, how might we be involved in the work of IJM? Yeah.
1: Um, So I think one reason why there's so much talk of human trafficking just now is because people are more informed. Um, So I would invite you to explore these issues. We've got books at the back we've got information that can facilitate that. So the first step is exploring it and getting to know the situation a bit more. That then leads to opportunities to speak into certain situations and and raise your voice. So that would be one thing. Um, Another thing that we would uh, love you to engage in is prayer. Um, Might sound cliche for a Christian organization to say that, but prayer is at the heart of IGEM's work. An hour of every working day for staff and interns across the world is dedicated to prayer because we're dealing with weighty issues that um, weigh on us as people, but are also issues that we can't move ourselves. So prayer would definitely be one. And actually as part of that, with P's and G's, we're going to start a justice prayer community, um, which is something that's going to meet every six weeks. And it's going to meet on a Saturday morning. And this is going to be an opportunity for not only people to support IJM's work in prayer and to learn more about that, but I'm really keen for it to come alongside people in the congregation that are passionate about these issues, um, people in the congregation that are connected uh, to these issues in their workplace, whether they're lawyers, police, social workers, care providers, that type of thing. And um, so it will be an opportunity to really invest in you and pray for you guys as well. Um, yeah, and just uh, come and speak. And the oh, yes, card. So I didn't uh, forget it, and I managed <laughs> to forget it. Oh. Um, on all of your seats, uh, you have a petition card. This is something that I would love for all of you to partake in. Um, to set the context of it, the United Nations set goals. Uh, periodically for eradicating issues of poverty globally and climate justice and various things like that. Um, For the past two years or so, IGEM have been campaigning at a United Nations level for the issue of justice, uh, security, and uh, the problem of broken justice systems to be at the forefront in the fight against global poverty. Um, There's been some really positive steps towards that Um, but I would just invite you to add your voice uh, to our campaign, and there are also opportunities to get uh, updates from IJM, fortnightly prayer updates, and then kind of breaking news when we have uh, successful operations and that type of thing.
0: Well, it's a privilege to be a partner with you as a church.